guardian angels, and patron saints, pray, pray for us. us. Well, this week, in the midst of my uh, communications and emails and administrative responsibilities, I received a, a request from a software company that we've been uh, started using recently. It was one of those customer satisfaction surveys. Um, I thought I'd take it. There was a $100 gift card raffle at the end of it. Why not? I got a few minutes. And as the questions came out, as I'm sure many of you have taken these, these surveys, I got a little, I got my, my little interior troll started to come out and I started to answer in kind of, I'd say obnoxious ways. Uh, just to see, you know, imagining people going down the list of all the responses and coming across, you know, just something really unusual and trying to figure out what that might be. You know, what, is, what does success look like for your organization? Well, uh, love God with all your heart, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, you know, something like that. Or, you know, to remain faithful to the truth under torture. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> but there was one question that really caught my attention and actually kind of threw me for a little bit of a loop as I tried to think about it. The question was, what motivates you? There I got very, very much in earnest with my answer. John chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. There I wasn't, I wasn't kidding. I was, I was very genuine in my answer. And who knows? Maybe someone will be inspired by that on the other end of that survey. My chances of winning the $100 gift card are probably pretty slim. But that's not what motivates me, after all. What motivates me is this promise of Jesus, the promise of God himself, that he has prepared for me and for all those who love him a perfect life that cannot be taken away by anything but sin. It can't be taken by force or by fear or by death itself. This is the source of the amazement of the disciples as they see Jesus risen from the dead, incredulous for joy. Over the past year, as I consider what motivates me, I've made two consistent observations. Two things have, have presented themselves to me steadily, and, and they've been weighing on me or kind of bothering me like a canker. On my, on my heart, and I, I'm trying to make sense of them in the midst of that question, what motivates me? These two observations that I've made seem to me obvious, very true, and also completely contradictory. The first observation I've been making is that we're not made for this world because when we look around, what we see is that the world is a sorrowful and dangerous and unjust place full of disappointments, cruelty, and unkindness. I think we spend a lot of our time pointing that out to one another. It fills our entertainment, our media, our culture at large, and is present in our church, too. And the second thing I've observed at the same time is that 
Everyone wants to stay here as long as possible. I don't know how both of those can be true at the same time, but I, I keep seeing them. How can that be the case? How can that be true that we recognize and are frustrated by the conditions of this present life? And when offered a chance to go to a place where those conditions no longer prevail, we resist it with all our strength. However, I think this is a natural response. I think it's the result of a, of a couple of things that are just part of our makeup as human beings. And, and the first of those is that we tend to be afraid of what we don't know. The only thing that we know about heaven is that it's perfect. But that's hard for us to grasp. Okay, yes, it's perfect. God has high standards, as we know. He wouldn't live there if it weren't. <laughs> but in heaven, what we come to understand it by, by really negating what we know to be true of this life. In heaven, there's no, there's no worry. In heaven, there's no, no, no tears, no sadness, no hunger, no famine, no poverty, no disease, no crime, no anxiety. But those are all no things. They're denying what we know to be the case here. What we're saying about heaven is that whatever it is, it's not this. And that doesn't tell us very much, does it? We can hardly imagine what heaven, what perfection really is. Our souls are limited. Our imaginations are constrained by our human finitude and the experience of, of comfort. We lack the capacity to guess at what is perfect, to long for what is perfect, because we've grown so accustomed to what seems solid and real to us, our, our sense, our experience. And so we fear what we do not know. That's why everyone's afraid of the dark. We don't know what's there. One of my one of my great disappointments of this, of this past year is looking to the church and oftentimes finding that same uncertainty present. A kind of infection of fear that's crept into even those who are people of faith. And I say this not about something in particular or one statement or, or a person or a group of people, but just... Just something that has been a, a, a tone and a, and a feeling that I've perceived and noticed over time. No one has come out and said, stay alive at all costs. But our actions speak louder than our words. And our actions seem to indicate that that's precisely what's motivating a lot of what defines our lives right now. I think throughout the world, what I've felt and what I've seen is a retreat from the truths of our faith, of the creed, that place the salvation of souls first. First. And over the past year, as we've cared for our bodies, which is good, right? 
take seriously the responsibility to care for the sick, to bring healing. That's a work of charity and of love. We work to preserve our health because it's a gift from God. We don't throw it away carelessly. But what I've felt is that we've begun to care for our health and our bodies at the expense of our souls. And this is madness, of course. It's madness when we know with total certainty that our bodies are going to crumble and collapse and return to the dust from which they were made. But our souls will outlive the hardest diamond. Our souls will outshine the brightest and steadiest star in the sky. They will survive the death of the universe itself. That's true of everyone. That's true of everyone. That's the source of the dignity that we carry. That we we are immortal beings. We're destined for life forever. Whether that's in a resurrection to life or to death is another question. But we outlast everything. God intended it to be so. Regardless of our gifts, regardless of our background, our level of education, whatever may afflict or hold us back, we are immortal. So what motivates me as a priest is that the abundant life won for us by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection be lived out by as many as possible. That's what motivates me. And why I'm disappointed is that I feel like the church herself, her leadership, bishops, and priests, and I implicate myself in this too, I'm not pointing fingers, that we've, we've responded to the public health crisis of our country or our entire planet in such a way that it's allowed our sense of faith to be eroded. That we really believe what we preach. After all, doesn't God know the hour and the minute and the very second of our death? The moment in which our life will be handed over to him? Has he not sent his angels to prepare us to return our lives to him? as we breathe our final amen. And if the people responsible for preaching the gospel retreat into their rectories, withhold the sacraments to their, from their flocks, and demand that others do the same, out of concern with something that, yes, may, may take lives for, for a portion of the people who suffer from it. Doesn't doesn't that end up saying our proclamation of the gospel rings a little hollow? Do people really believe what they preach when they say heaven awaits us? Does anyone think we really believe in heaven when we act in this way? This is the question that's been bothering me. A priest is not ordained to preserve the bodily health of his flock. It's good to preserve health. There are people who dedicate their lives to it, a noble profession. But that's not what a priest lives for. A priest is ordained to prepare people to die well, in friendship with God, with their hearts set on him, 
reconciled with him, eager to see him, no longer dimly as in a mirror, but face to face. So, I make this observation to the church. Let's begin placing the health of our souls first, once again. I don't mean at the expense of our bodies. The time may come for us to save our souls at the expense of our lives. That time is not now. It may come. But in the meanwhile, we need to order our lives first and foremost around the health of our souls. Put first things first and second things second. This is why so many of you are here to participate in the sacraments. Many of you coming back for the first time to this Mass. Praise God. How beautiful that is to be, to be once again united around this altar. The sacraments are what keep our hearts set on longing for what we do not yet possess, namely the perfect life of heaven, rather than enjoying what we already do possess, namely the comforts of this world, this passing world. The sacraments are not optional bonus points for the divine life that God shares with us. They are the way he has chosen to save us. They're the way he's chosen to give his salvation to the world, to communicate to us his life and restore us to sanity. Here in this place where when he came, the author of life, he was put to death. We don't belong here. We were not made for this world. We long for the far green country under a swift sunrise. We need to turn an upside down world right side up again. This is our calling to be light and salt. And that begins with us seeing things properly, seeing them, things as they are. We find ourselves in a position of trying to read God's book but we're upside down. Maybe turning ourselves over to try to see it aright means everyone else will say, you fools, you're standing on your heads. Maybe that's a sign to us that we're starting to get it right again. And that everyone else is still trying to read it upside down. So, I know I'm saying this to people who understand this. You've made the sacrifices. You've made the commitment. You've persevered. I know I'm preaching to the choir on this regard. But let's bring our brothers and sisters back who have not yet come to this awareness or made this resolution as you have. If we see people going to restaurants, to Walmart, to movies, going on vacation, whatever else it is that is it the normal parts of their lives that brings them comfort and security in this passing world? But they think mass or confession is too dangerous. Well, we've got it backwards. We've begun putting second things first and neglecting the fundamentals. So with love and charity, perseverance, and for the good of the people in our lives, let's invite them back. 
Put the health of your soul first again and let other things take their proper place after it. One last thought. Maybe you're thinking as I'm, as I'm describing this situation, Father Nick, this world is full of God's gifts. There's so much beauty, so much goodness here. Why are you such a downer? <laughs> you sound like you want us to throw these things away, despise them, and toss them aside as if they don't matter. All the beauty and the love and the friendship and the laughter and family that makes life worth living. You sound like you need a hug. <laughs> Somebody told me that after the 4 p.m. Mass. Very sweet, very kind. But let me be clear. I, I don't mean to say it that way. I'm not depressed. I'm not lonely. Christ has given me a hope beyond hope. And that redeems the cruelty and the injustice and the disappointments that afflict me and all of us in this life. I'm asking all of us to confront that inner voice that says, I can't imagine being happy without these things, these people, this familiar life that I enjoy. Heaven is far away. Earth is close by. I'll just leave you with this reflection by, by the great C.S. Lewis, who talks about what, what is the right approach, the right attitude, the relationship to the good things that God has given us in this world. He says, the books or the music or the people in which we thought the beauty we longed for was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, the gifts that God gives us in this life, they are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not yet heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. See, what Lewis says is that when we allow what we understand and what we know to teach us about what we don't know, the enjoyment of that is good. But when we allow what we know and understand to make us forget about what we fear. The enjoyment of that is evil. And in the end, maybe all of this worrying over something that is actually wonderful, wonderful quite beyond measure, is to miss the point. I very much like the thought that when I have breathed my last, and when I stand before God, it will not be something unsettling or unfamiliar, but something that is deeply familiar. Something that my soul has cried out and longed for all these decades of working here in this valley of tears.
What if it will be a relief? As St. Paul taught, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Pray for your priests. Pray for the leaders of our church. Pray for each other. May it never be said of us that we let fear conquer our faith in Christ. Let death come. What are we afraid of? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.